Our first speaker tonight is Brent Budsberg. Brent comes to us from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where he is an artist, an exhibition designer, a woodworker. He owns and operates a firm called Current Projects, which he collaborates on with his uh, wife, Shana McCaw. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a firm that specializes in design and custom fabrication for museums, for artists, for filmmakers. Since 2013, he has worked closely with the Chipstone Foundation. And um, as he'll tell you, in some ways, our exhibition got its, uh, the seed of the idea came from um, a visit that the Chipstone Foundation paid to Boston um, a couple years ago, actually before I came on board with the Athenaeum. And they fell in love with that remarkable cabinet up on the third floor that houses the King's Chapel Library. Um, and, uh, and thinking about the way that that cabinet interacts with its contents. Um, and so when I came on board, I was able to participate in the discussions that they had already started um, about how, how these two things come together. I'm a book historian and an historian of libraries, and thinking and, and a 17th century specialist. So it was wonderful getting their insight into that piece of furniture as a, a 19th century colonial revival piece. Um, and out of that uh, came a process of brainstorming and back and forthing and, and pushing and pulling. We got Brent into the conversation because of his work with Chipstone, and we're very, very fortunate to have him here tonight all the way from Wisconsin. Um, he's done some wonderful exhibitions and installations with Chipstone and with others, including um, Mrs. M's Cabinet at the Milwaukee Art Museum, which is sort of a, an installation piece in a room um, where the, the entire room is a Wunderkammer, a cabinet of curiosities. And it's a, just a remarkable, remarkable um, uh, piece. He did Eliza's peculiar cabinet of curiosities at Linden Sculpture Garden. And uh, he worked on Florence Isaman designing childhood for the American century at the Museum of Wisconsin Art. Um, he has exhibited sculpture, photography, and film nationally and internationally, along with Shana McCaw, his wife and collaborator. And he's received numerous awards, including Fellowship.Art and the Mary Knoll Fellowship for Individual Artists. So Brent will lead us off, and he will be followed by Ellen Caspern. And one of the things I, I love about our, our show is after getting Chipstone and um, Brent involved and, and Brent's team as well, um, we, we thought about ways that we could involve our local um, craftspeople affiliated with North Bennett Street School. And I was really excited to be able to commission Ellen to work on one of the pieces in the show. She'll tell you about it. Ellen started out, Ellen Caspern started out woodworking in her father's shop. After college and graduate school, she pursued a career in furniture making. She attended North Bennett Street School in Boston and graduated from their cabinet and furniture making program in 2003. 
In 2004, she joined the cooperative Fort Point cabinet makers, where she was a member for 15 years. Currently, she is a member at the Elwood Shop, where she designs and builds custom furniture, built-ins, and small objects. She teaches furniture making at various schools on the East Coast and has written articles and instructional videos for Fine Woodworking magazine. Casper's work has been shown at the Society of Arts and Crafts in Boston, the Fruitlands Museum in Harvard, Mass., Peters Valley School of Craft in Layton, New Jersey, Gallery 263 in Cambridge, Mass., Pearl Street Gallery in Chelsea, Mosesian Center for the Arts in Watertown, the Umbrella Gallery in Concord, and Wingate Gallery at North Bennett Street School. And our, our third and final presenter will be Jeffrey Altpeter. And I knew early on, in, after getting involved in this exhibition project, that book bindings were an important part of the story part of the fascinating survival of the King's Chapel Library is the sheer number of original 17th century book bindings that survive on these books. The stamping on their covers were commissioned by the Reverend Dr. Thomas Bray in 1697. And uh, when they arrived here in 1698, the covers of all the books said De Biblioteca de Boston, from the Library of Boston. Um, and three-fourths of the original 221 volumes that Bray sent from England to the Massachusetts Bay Colony still bear those original cover stamps, um, so the cover lettering. So it's so so working with Jeff to make models for the exhibition and including models uh, of the, those structures and those lettering styles that our visitors could handle um, became an important part of uh, what I hoped for uh, to, to be part of the interactive visitor experience. Jeff um, Jeff Alt Peter is head of the bookbinding department at North Bennett Street School and has, has been there since 2007. He is also an alumnus of North Bennett and uh, he's been involved with the American Academy of Bookbinding. He's worked for Harcourt Bindery, Harvard, and is also uh, a self-employed bookbinder. He specializes in leather bindings, boxes, and presentation materials. Once our three presentations have concluded, We've asked Miguel Gomez Ibanez to engage the panel in a discussion. Miguel is the president emeritus of North Bennett Street School. He's the only graduate of the school to have served in that position. He combined his first career practicing architecture with his North Bennett Street School training as a cabinet maker to become a nationally recognized designer and maker of studio furniture. His work has been featured in numerous journals, including House and Garden, Good Housekeeping, American Craft, and Fine Woodworking. And his work has been exhibited in galleries and museums across the country. Miguel has contributed articles and essays on furniture and design to a number of books and magazines, including Fine Woodworking, Woodworkers Journal, American Furniture, Furniture Studio. 
He is a past president of the Furniture Society and currently serves on the board of trustees of Haystack Mountain School of Crafts and the American Craft Council. We'll conclude the evening with Q&A from the audience before partaking in a delightful reception in the first floor bow room just outside this room. And if you have not yet seen the exhibition, the exhibition is open during the reception. It's just on the, uh, the other side of the bow room in our gallery and the adjunct space um, outside the children's library that away. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming our panelists. Hello, thank you all so much for being here tonight. Um, my name is Brent Budsberg. Um, I am the exhibition designer and I uh, created the replica cabinet uh, based on the King's Chapel um, arc upstairs on the fourth floor. Um, <clears throat> I'm gonna tell you a little bit about the process and just a little bit about some of the work that preceded that and some of the work I'm doing uh, currently at the moment. Um, so I'll just start by saying I am not trained as a woodworker. Um, I actually went to school for sculpture, <clears throat> and um, it's been a sort of a long journey to get to the point where I'm at now, and I, I, as I sort of move on with these projects, I'm getting um, deeper and deeper into the craft aspects of, um, of woodworking, and it sort of started out with um, me uh, needing a job after college because uh, sculpture, surprisingly, didn't uh, pay the bills right away, so I started working on um, houses and, and renovating houses uh, in uh, my own uh, neighborhood of River West in Milwaukee. And um, I uh, was really interested in what the carpenters were doing, so uh, that seemed like a lot more fun than hanging drywall and painting. Um, so I sort of uh, latched onto those jobs, um, started a carpentry practice of my own, and then began to specialize more and more into um, uh, um, sort of uh, renovating historic, um, trying to reno renovate historically appropriate um, and period style. And then from there, that sort of developed into a woodworking practice where I'm doing custom cabinetry, custom furniture, et cetera, et cetera. Um, eventually, I got hooked up with the Chipstone Foundation, um, where I became their exhibition designer. And um, one of the first exhibits I did with them was uh, essentially a period room. And we did a, um, uh, an exhibit called The Print Room. And um, in that exhibit, we, uh, we kind of transformed the space into something of a period room. And it was a, a bit of an endeavor, uh, but they came to me afterwards and they showed me, uh, and Sarah Carter, who was the uh, curator there at the time, showed me this picture. And she said, can you, can you make this for us? Uh, <laughs> at the Milwaukee Art Museum. And um, so my jaw dropped a little bit. And, uh, I, uh, and, and so this is, the, this is the Isaac Bell House in Newport, Rhode Island. And um, I thought they were absolutely um, crazy to, uh, to ask me to try to recreate something like this. Um, but I was also really interested in the project. And I thought if, if by any chance I could actually survive this, I would come out the other end um, in a much uh, more, a better place where I could do a lot more than I could do now. <laughs> um, so I went and visited the Isaac Bell House 
um, and looked at this room. Um, one of the things that was apparent right away was they wanted to use this exhibit at the Milwaukee Art Museum as a place to exhibit their ceramics. And there's nothing in this room that um, really uh, provides a, a display space for that. So right away we knew that we needed to uh, reinterpret this and really just use this room as a starting point and um, design around that. Um, so what, after about a, a year of design and work, um, actually I should, I should start by saying we didn't know what we were gonna make, but we had about a, a, a one year timeline. And so um, we needed to get started building, but we also needed to be designing the room in that time. So what we did is we looked at these wheel panels that were part of this room in the Isaac Bell House, and we just started making them because we knew we wanted to replicate those and incorporate them into the room. Um, so I, I set a couple of um, uh, people who were working in my shop on to uh, creating those wheel, those wheel panels while we designed a paneling system around it and eventually uh, the entire room around that. Um, this is the, um, the room that resulted. So this is an exhibit um, called uh, Mrs. M's Cabinet, which is at the Milwaukee Art Museum. And what was really interesting about this challenge was um, that uh, we really needed to um, sort of take on almost a character of, the, uh, of an architect. I needed to sort of embody that character as a way of trying to think through how to create this room and how to design that room. So it needed to be period appropriate. We um, developed this character of Mrs. M and this is her collection of uh, ceramics that she's collected from around the world. So it's sort of a wunderkammer. Um, but uh, essentially, this was an extension of what I was doing as a carpenter because I was working essentially in period style. Um, so I was looking at a lot of precedents and um, looking at a lot of individual elements and bringing them together to try to create um, something that was appropriate to the period. But it was still of my own uh, invention to some degree. And um, what's an interesting uh, you know, thing I think about with this as compared to this project at the um, Athenaeum is that um, even though this was far beyond anything I, I had ever attempted before, um, it was each, each element was still maybe something that I was ready to try to tackle, right? So it was sort of like in some ways based on what I had known before and what I felt like I was ready to delve into. So the design was sort of based around that. What I found really interesting about the project here at the Athenaeum was that I didn't really have that opportunity to design based on what I felt I was ready to do. Instead, we looked at this object and we said, well, we need to recreate this. And all of the challenges are sort of laid out before you. And um, in this case, it's, it's, it's more of a, um, an exercise of, of finding out, figuring out how to replicate each, each individual detail of this pre-existing cabinet. So, and, and in many respects, this was the first um, reproduction piece that I had really done, certainly of this, of this level. Um, and um, so it was, uh, it, was, it was an interesting project in that um, I had less decision-making power um, but, and, and it was also like a, a, a list of, of sort of tasks or a group of tasks that um, were laid out that I, I, I didn't have the same kind of control over. Um, and in many ways, I think I learned more uh, because of that. Um, the approach we took um, to, uh, you know, we had to create this off-site. So I have my shop in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 
Um, and so we visited the Athenaeum, and um, I spent a couple days with the cabinet, and I decided to create a 3D digital model of the cabinet um, as a way of um, basically trying to bring the cabinet with me or getting as close as I possibly could to that. So along with this, I also um, pretty meticulously photographed the cabinet, um, and I really wanted to have a com uh, as, as complete of a model as I could possibly get before getting back on the plane and heading back um, to Wisconsin. And in, in many respects, that worked uh, pretty well, um, somewhat surprisingly well. Um, we had most of the information we needed in order to um, replicate the piece. Um, uh, but it did uh, come with a lot of interesting challenges. Um, and so there, were, there was a lot of aspects of this piece that were pushing us beyond our, um, our current skill set. And I keep saying us because I work with a team of um, artisans in Milwaukee. Um, and two of them are shown here. This is uh, Joe Thrasher on the left, um, also a world jiu-jitsu champion, incidentally. And... Um, <laughs> Brock Toft in, in the center. Um, and you can see the room that we have, that we're showing there is at the Chipstone House in Milwaukee. And uh, it houses their collection of ceramics, um, which were originally all on open shelves. So we built this cabinet, uh, these, these cabinet doors to house them. And they're actually based on cabinet doors that the same architect uh, built that we, we saw at another house built by the same architect. So um, and, and you compare these to the doors in the King's Chapel arc, and um, you can see that there's some of the same skill sets involved. So we kind of came to this with some experience, um, but, you know, the, uh, the King's Chapel cabinet kind of upped the ante with these um, curved muntins and circles and uh, uh, blown glass. Um, so this was one of the, one of the challenges that presented, and I had uh, Brock Toft was uh, pretty much spent the uh, entire nine months working on these these doors. Um, another interesting challenge was the um, coopered uh, roof, um, which uh, again is something we had not attempted in the past. So you can see. Um, um, and it's something, you know, I've read about and, and, and studied up on a little bit and thought about attempting, but I never really had the opportunity to. Um, so here you can see a little bit of our construction method on the right. Um, this is made up of individual um, boards that are glued up in uh, sections of, of two um, and, then, and then put together for a larger glue up. Each of those are cut to a specific angle to sort of approximate the curve. Um, and then... Um, smoothed out with hand planes um, uh, to, to finish it off. Um, interestingly, this is one of the um, uh, aspects of the original cabinet that, is, uh, that has sort of an engineering flaw, um, which is that this is a, um, a wide span of, of, of uh, material which is going to expand and contract, and it's expanding and contracting in conflict with um, some of the other pieces that are attached to it. So you can see that the roof is, is cracking. And uh, as much as we scratched our head about how to solve this problem, we didn't solve it either. And I will predict that the roof on the one we made will also crack eventually. <laughs> so sorry, John. Um, <clears throat> Uh, another interesting challenge was um, the hand-carved egg and dart molding, um, which was also gilded. 
Um, so this is again pushing us uh, beyond our current skill levels quite a bit. Um, so this is Joe Joe Thrasher. Um, I, I we we sort of divided the labor on this project, and um, you know I gave Brock the doors. I was doing most of the turning, and I, I worked on the the upper portion of the cabinet quite a bit. Um, Joe was doing uh, most of the carved elements. So he, he carved all of this egg and dart molding based on the photographs um, uh, that I took of the original piece. Um, and this is one of those moments where we're making this decision, like, can we just buy this stuff and put it on? You know, and, and you, you search and you search and you can't find the right size, and it's just like, no, we, we gotta do it. We have, no, we have no choice, we have to do it. We have to learn how to do it. We have to do it. So a lot of samples before we got to that point. Um, also, just really interesting uh, ornamental details that posed all sorts of challenges. Um, there's a lot of sort of detective work that went into um, just kind of figuring out how they put this this part together, this sort of uh, ornament that's um, up at the top of the cabinet. Um, the uh, it's, it really was uh, done in layers. Um, and um, we, we kind of, uh, we never really set out with this project to do, uh, to reproduce it using all of the same methods as the original. Um, so we did, there's parts of this that are routed, but there's also parts that are hand carved. Um, you can see the, uh, the little dome shaped pieces. Those are literally just furniture tacks that are just pounded in. Um, and of course it was gonna be painted, so. Um, seemed appropriate to uh, to do it that way. I do believe the original were, were probably would. But um, um, let's see. Um, and of course, uh, if you've seen the exhibit, um, the, uh, the one major alteration we made to the original cabinet is that we split it down the middle and separated it into two. Um, so this was done um, partly because we, we saw the original cabinet and we were like, well, why does, why does Boston, why does the Boston Athenaeum need two of these, right? So if we're gonna reproduce this, let's, let's do something radically different to it. So we wanted some sort of radical gesture um, to uh, kind of reimagine this and also think about how it can pro be programmed in an ex exhibition setting. And one of the things we wanted to do was really sort of look at this library from a different perspective. Um, so, and, and also to open up the library. So we did that um, by bisecting it and creating um, the, uh, um, a cabinet in two parts. Um, what's interesting about that is it opens up and, and exposes much of the construction, um, and it also exposes a lot of the voids that were present in the original that, that are um, invisible to the, to the viewer. Um, and here it is in the exhibition functioning as a library. Um, so we created a um, contemporary library that asked the question, what is essential knowledge? Um, because essentially the, originally, or the original cabinet was trying to present um, a somewhat concise um, uh, body of essential knowledge. And so we wanted to ask the question, what is, what is essential knowledge today? So we sort of partnered with um, multiple institutions and then also have a drawer that you see there on the uh, uh, right, which, um, let's see if I can get my pointer to work. Oops, that's the wrong button. Anyway, you see the drawer on the right where you can uh, add your own submission to the library. Um, here's the cabinet in the exhibit. Um, 
And then I just wanted to end um, by looking at um, the project we're working on right now. Um, so this is back in that same exhibit at the Chipstone Foundation in the ceramics room. Um, one of the interesting features of that room is there's a hidden bar in that room that's original to the house. There's a wall that opens up and um, reveals a, um, a bar. And it's this sort of house that was uh, constructed in a colonial style, um, but everything that was um, behind those, those sort of show spaces was 1950s, which is um, how it was originally built, So, or, or the time when it was originally built. So we wanted to exploit this idea of hidden spaces. So this is a cabinet that drops down. Um, and so originally that you come to this, it's three panels and you just read it as a paneled wall. You press on the bottom and this, this reveals this um, cabinet and work surface, um, which, and the cabinet houses ceramic shards and the work surface is for examining uh, ceramic shards. Um, so once again, we're kind of coming full circle to the, the approach again of um, trying to kind of take some of the things we've learned um, through doing these types of reproductions. Um, and, and trying to synthesize those into something that is um, appropriate to the period, but um, sort of working with a um, contemporary set of parameters and uh, um, you know, the, the, the programming that we're trying to do with the, uh, the room itself. So, um, and that's all I have. Thank you. Hi, I'm Ellen Caspern, and uh, as John said, I'm a furniture maker, and I graduated from the North Bennett Street School in 2003, and I like to think that I never left the school soon after I graduated. Well, actually, while I was a student, I started assisting in the continuing ed program, um, assisting teaching workshops, and then soon after that, I started teaching in the continuing ed program. And, and I also teach adjunct in the full-time program. So I really am, feel very lucky that I actually still never left the school. And I was contacted by Claire Fruitman, the provost at North Bennett Street. Um, and she had asked me if I would be interested um, in working with the Athenaeum on reproducing a book press. And she got me in contact with John. And we talked on the phone. And this was the beginning of August. And it was due... September 16th, <laughs> and I was like going on vacation to Norway, and I was like, yes, I will do this, and by the time I got back, I had four weeks to uh, reproduce the piece, and so it was, it was really fun, it was really, but you can see on the left is the um, book press, which is actually now in um, Canterbury, England, and then you can see on the right is the book press that I reproduced. Um, and so I was just gonna walk through my process of how I actually um, reproduced it. So the, you can see here, these are the case sides. I think she said that there is a pointer on this. Oh, there we go. So this, the, the, these are the, the sides of the case, and then um, this is the joinery that um, these are uh, 
mortises and tenons will go into these, the top and bottoms go into the bottom. This is actually the bottom of the case and this is actually the top of the case. And then these are dados and they actually um, will house the shelves um, for the book press. So the shelves are fixed. So unlike today where most of our, you know, our bookcases, the shelves are adjustable. These shelves are actually fixed in the case and it's um, flat sawn uh, white oak. Um, and then you can see here the case, I'm putting it together. I actually wasn't able to glue it up yet. I had to, um, the bottom shelf, you'll see, was complicated and I couldn't glue the case up until the bottom shelf was actually put in the case. So you can see I'm just kind of testing the case going together. And then I just kind of really like this detail of these are the shelves, and this is a profile of the shelf. It's a fillet, and then a round over, and then a fillet. And I actually think it's a really nice detail, so kind of wanted to show that detail. And then there it is again, and that is the top and the middle shelves are actually not as wide as the bottom shelf. And so that's, I think that's the top shelf. And that's, again, on the left is the original, and then the right is is the one that I did. And then on the outside of the case, if you can see if I can do that again yet, yeah, there's the pointer. The bottom shelf actually has something called a through tenon where the bottom shelf actually comes through the case and so I had to reproduce that. And so right there I just kind of wanted to show how the bottom shelf is actually coming out of the case. And then also you can see that I started to paint the case. Um, the panels are going to be moving with the weather so that um, wood always is expanding and contract contracting with the season. So I wanted to paint the panels before um, I glued up the door so that when it expanded and contracted the panels of the door, you would you wouldn't see like, you know, bare wood, it would all be painted. So that's why the door is painted right now. The panels are painted. And then here I actually have the through tenon. Kind of went sideways. I have a little video. You can kind of see the tenon. You're going to go around to the other side and see it pop out on the other side. And then on the first picture, you can see where I'm starting to lay out this work. I have to notch out this piece so it, so it can um, go around the dado and then the tenon will come through and then it goes through the outside. And then there is, again, the original. You can see this is the tenon coming through. And you know, it's um, from 1710, the original. So you can see like kind of the movement. And you can see this is where my tenon is going through on the other side. And just some layout marks that I had made on the piece. And there it is. I'm not sure if it's, I think on the left it's not glued up and then on the right I actually had glued it together. And then I'm starting to fit the shelves in. Um, and so I was trying to get those to fit in. I don't want to see any gaps, so I'm slowly hand planing these so that they fit in and slide forward. So that's kind of my process when I'm making this piece. So it's a very exciting moment when I glued it up. Gluing up is always the hardest. And then the back of the case, I really like the back. I was very sad when uh, I knew it would be filled with books. I just think the back is... <laughs> 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 
so beautiful. I was like, I want to see the back. <laughs> um, the back actually slides in um, into a groove. Uh, and so that is, and then you can see the back in place. And then I did have a freak out moment after I delivered it. Um, <laughs> the back also got screwed in and I called John or I emailed John frantically that I realized I didn't leave I left room for the back to expand and contract with the seasons, but then I screwed it in tight. And so I was like, I have to come back and make the screws sloppy so that it can move. But I know this is climate controlled. And actually when I took the screws out, they were physically bent because it was, you could see that they were, they were, I actually, I saved them. So they were, so, um, and then this is the door. Uh, this was really interesting. I would have made the door differently. Um, the door has, it's mitered in the corners. And so nowadays I would use um, some router bits that would actually do all this for me, but I actually had to cut all these by hand. Um, I did use a router bit to make the bead um, and the fillet part of this, but uh, I didn't use um, the router bit that would actually do this coping and stick. I actually um, did that by hand and cut this by hand. And the door, also has something, the, the original door had offset shoulders, so I wanted to make sure I did the same on, on my piece that I made on the, on the replica. And then you can see the door and the panels, the raised panels. Then there it is. I'm just kind of testing it. Oops, went too far. Making sure that I made it over in size, a little bit over in size, and then I hand planed it down to actually fit the case. Um, and then the hinges um, was really fun to research the strap hinges um, and so I bought this bought these um, they're iron the original are iron um, the original are nailed in um, mine do have screws so they are screwed in and then you can see again on the outside of the case just kind of the barrel of the hinge it's kind of what I'm showcasing and then you can see that through tenon and the doors really, since the door is really heavy, on the original you could see how it was uh, sloping down, like the door is actually, you know, the door is falling. So I was really concerned about that when I was making this piece about the door falling. And I think that was kind of stressful. Um, and then the book press actually locks, so it has a mortise lock. Um, and so I bought these from a, I bought mine from a company called Ball and Ball, and they're in Pennsylvania. Uh, and then, so the book press locks. And then you can see here I'm cutting out the keyhole and then the escutcheon um, that I bought. You know, I couldn't find the exact replica, so I picked something that was fairly close. Um, it's iron as well. And then the handles I was really excited about because I had met a woman when I was... Um, Every year I do a winter residency at um, Penland School of Craft, and I met Rachel um, Kettinger uh, down there, and she's an iron worker, and so I asked her what, I couldn't find any handles that looked like the original of the book press, and so I contacted her and asked if she'd give me a price, and then I contacted John, and I was like, you know, it would be really cool. The outside of the, so these are the case, the case was meant to be carried, to carry the books, um, and so these are on, are, go on the outside of the case. 
and you'll see that. So this is Rachel's work when I open them up. And then you can see there, the handle is right there. And then I was painting, yes, blue painter's tape. It's woodworker's best friend. Uh, <laughs> I didn't want to take the hinges off because I was afraid the more I took the hinges on and off the case, it would change how the door fit. And I had already fit the door and like hand planed it. And I was like, I am not taking these, these strap hinges off. I'm just gonna cover them up. So I'm starting to paint it. And then also the molding detail. So on the original, the bottom molding was gone, um, but I had been in lots of contact with um, my former shop mate who started uh, the shop that I had previously been in, Four Point Cabinet Makers, and my mentor friend and also um, one of my instructors at North Bennett Street, his name's Lance Patterson, and so many emails and phone calls to him at home about you know, reproducing this. And he said that the bottom definitely would have had the molding. So I put the molding on the bottom. And you can see I was doing the molding on the top. So um, I built it up of these, this is one piece and then the other, another piece. And then you can see the top is very thin. Theirs was all one piece, um, but I had to kind of build it up. And then the lettering by Marianne um, Gerbenstein. And so I just love it. Um, so the Anthonyum is using the book press as a free library for children to put in books and take books. And I think that's really special. So people get to open it. Um, and she did the lettering. Um, and then you can see the inside of the book press. So again, on the left, the original, on the right, the new one. And then just kind of mentioning all of us. And then Lance also took all the photographs, all the professional photographs that you see were taken also by uh, Lance Patterson. So um, just kind of a few more photos. But it was really fun. So yeah, it was a really great project. Thank you. I should have had uh, Lance take my pictures. <laughs> Um, I'm gonna, uh, my name's Jeff Altapeter. Uh, I am the department head at North Bennett Street School, the bookbinding department. And I'm gonna talk a little bit about making historic models a little bit generally. Uh, this is something that we do quite a bit in the bookbinding program there as, as part of our process. It's, um, we, we use it in a, in a number of different ways. Um, we, we use it as a, as a hands-on study. Um, we use it, sorry, I, I have two up here. <laughs> uh, we use it as a hands-on study of the history of bookbinding. We use it to understand the materials and techniques 
uh, in context as a way of understanding structure for conservation purposes as well as for designing new bindings and as a way to practice applicable bench skills. Um, we have kind of a, I, I would say a kind of dual didactic purpose. Um, and part of that is the skill building through that contextual use of materials, tools, and techniques. Um, and then that hands-on study of the history of the craft, which just becomes so important uh, no matter what direction that our graduates go in. The models that we make in the period that we study mostly are 14th through 19th century book structures, Western style book structures. Um, I brought samples of some of these types of models and they're out on a table right out in the bow room. Um, you're welcome to handle them, they're, they're models. So <laughs> they're teaching models, they're fine. I'd rather you not pour wine on them, but other than that, I'm really not that worried about them. So please feel free to handle them. Uh, and ask me questions when we're out there. Um, we make what I would consider three types of models within these sort of variety. Um, we make things that I would term prototypes or dummies for a lot of different specific projects. Um, we make facsimile representations of specific books. So out there on the table there's an example of uh, there's a model, not a very nice model, I'm embarrassed to say, but there is a model of a St. Cuthbert Gospel out there on the table. That is a specific book, uh, and I'll get into talking about looking at real books versus uh, models uh, a little bit here, but that is a great example of one that um, we don't really have easy access to. Um, uh, we also make models that I would consider composite historical uh, structures, and those are looking at more, um, more at a, a, a features that are typical to a particular period um, and kind of combining them to, to, to make one book structure that works uh, with that. Um, so sources, um, you know, ideally we want to examine actual historic bindings, and we look at real books whenever possible. In the case of the, of, uh, of the books uh, uh, involved in this exhibit, we came over, John showed us uh, um, several examples of those books, uh, along with a, a number of other uh, period bindings that we're interested in. But we often have to supplement that, no matter what kind of access we have to books. Um, we have to supplement that with images of a broader range of bindings. Um, when we can look at uh, actual historic bindings, we like to find damaged books that reveal the underlying structure. Um, and we supplement all of that with diagrams of the structures, pictures from books, things like that. Uh, and making models essentially become uh, 3D versions of those diagrams and models that we're looking at. And they become examples that we can look at more uh, and handle more directly. Um, because I think that, that handling is probably, probably the main limitation when it comes to examining 
um, historic bindings, handling and understanding the mechanical properties of an object that has that we want to limit the handling of it, and the and the the mechanical properties has have changed sometimes very dramatically uh, to to what they were when the when the object was new. Um, so models kind of give us a chance to do that. One of our source materials here that I considered particularly in uh, uh, in this project, um, Dirk de Bray. Uh, these are this was a uh, kind of a manual. They were really uh, really his work his shop notes from his time as an apprentice as a bookbinder. Um, this image is of, of uh, the original book itself. Um, it's a parchment over boards binding, um, and it's one of the primary styles described in his notes in this little book, um, this, this same structure. I did bring a model which was made by Peter Garrity um, that is a parchment over boards uh, binding that's, that's out there on the table. Um, and uh, I also brought a, a limp vellum binding along as well uh, that's out there. Uh, these are some of uh, Dirk de Bray was a was an artist um, and uh, apprentice bookbinder, as we know. So these are his notes. <laughs> um, I mean, these are the the illustrations within his notes. Um, and within this, we see some uh, familiar tools, and we see some of them being used in a way that's kind of unfamiliar to the way we would work today. Uh, particularly the lower left there. Um, uh, I don't, that's not the recommended uh, stance uh, in our workshop. Uh, I don't even think I could do that at this point. Uh, we, we, uh, we, have, we have our lying press mounted on something called a tub, which they often did uh, stick this into a wooden tub which caught all those uh, trimmings, which they kept uh, um, for recycling. Uh, and then he's, he's using a plow there, which is just a way of trimming uh, a book edge. So ours is mounted on a, a, uh, a stand, again, called a tub, and it's a much more upright process, a lot more comfortable. Um, but there are a number of other things that are really familiar there. Uh, uh, to us, a number of the tools um, over there on the right. There are a couple of people sewing on sewing frames. Um, uh, it's exactly the way I sewed the book that I made for the exhibit in here. Um, uh, these are some. Oh, these are some plates from uh, Dudan's uh, 18th century French bookbinding manual. Um, this is another, um, has, some, has some very detailed plates, but also has um, some very detailed uh, um, information about the, the process. Not, it, neither of these things, I think, were written uh, as manuals exactly. One, like I say, uh, I, th I think, they were, I think they, were, they were just the guy's notes. Uh, Dudan's was more, I think, of a description, a very detailed description of the process meant more for the education of uh, 
the consumer probably more than more than anything. But there's a lot of very detailed information in there that is useful for us um, uh, in reproducing these things. Um, got a couple images here of uh, bindings. These come from uh, Stuart Bennett's book, um, Trade Book Binding in the British Isles. Um, I have this, some of these sources, not, not the original Dirk de Bray, but a, a facsimile of that, and also of the Dudan out there, and I also have the Stuart Bennett book out, out there on the table if you want to take a look. Some great images in here of trade bindings from the time period, and that is pretty much what we're looking at uh, for, the, for the books in the King's Chapel collection. Uh, this is a, a pretty plain sheepskin binding. Um, sprinkled, tooled in this um, very simple manner, um, be very typical of a, of a, of a, a fairly inexpensive style uh, in the 17th century. Um, another uh, example here, uh, a set of uh, 17th century bindings. Um, and I just want to point out, uh, the, the damage that you see on this board uh, that is partly to do with the, the decorative technique itself. Um, and I'll come back to that when I, when I, when I talk about that, uh, when I talk about how that's done. Um, another really great resource uh, that we use is uh, David Pearson's book on uh, English uh, bookbinding. I think that I think it's 1450 to 1800, and he's got some great images there of different key features of the bindings. Um, these are typical edge treatments for late 17th century um, edges. Give us another chance to consider some of the recipes from our period sources on uh, partly that I've used for the decoration of the leather, but we play around a lot with this um, using uh, pigments and staining rep recipes from the time period. I don't think I, I don't think I stained the edges of the book that's in the exhibit. Um, partly because the probably the most classic is this red edge, which is, uh, these are sprinkled, becomes more common into the 18th century to have a solid red edge is one of the most common ones you'll see, and it's vermilion. I do it, I do it sometimes, but it's toxic. Uh, so uh, let's look at that book I made for the exhibit. Uh, again, it was sewn on five linen cords on a sewing frame, much like we saw um, in the Dirk de Bray images. Um, it was then, and those, those cords are laced on, into the boards. Um, I, I believe there's a uncovered version in the uh, uh, in the auxiliary space over there that you can see how that's uh, the underlying structure is put together. It's covered then in an undyed calfskin. Then it's stained in a, in a, in a multi-step process. Uh, the first layer is uh, what they called salts of tartar. Uh, it's potassium carbonate. It's, uh, I, I apply several light coats of that which build up to a a kind of a light brown base tone. When that's dry, the leather's coated with egg glare, and then the leather's sprinkled with what they called copperus, 
uh, ferrous sulfate. And the action of that sprinkling, um, re it reacts uh, with the uh, salts of tartar, starts turning a, a very dark brown to black color. That action has to be stopped with cold water or it'll just continue to eat into the skin like an acid. Um, and I think the damage that can happen from that, that eaten looking leather that we saw a couple of slides ago, uh, is, is a bit of an example of, uh, of some of the possible dangers of this. Um, we've been playing around with this quite a bit um, at school um, because you can't get this effect any other way. Um, but I think that the, the, to mitigate the potential damage to the leather, um, I think one of the things that, are ha that happens on the books that haven't held up well uh, is that some combination of a, a poor application or lack of application of the egg glare and or uh, allowing that copperus to continue its action for too long. And so I've played around with that on some samples and they have clearly eaten into the leather. They don't look like 17th and 18th century uh, bindings yet, but I think they will. <laughs> and so I, I, think, I, think that's I think that's where those, those samples are headed. So I'm pretty sure that um, what I've done here is uh, gonna hold up as well as some of the ones that do hold up. <laughs> uh, this is a close up of uh, one of the books from the collection. Um, and uh, you can see a couple of things here. Uh, one, you can see uh, kind of crudely scratched in layout lines uh, for centering and, and laying out that lettering. Uh, you can also see, a, I think, a, probably a, a misplaced letter there in the, in the uh, top line, and they just kind of scratched it out and put the correct letter in over it. Um, so th these, they put these, they scratched these lines into the surface of the leather, laid gold onto that. You can see those marks through the gold, and then they apply those letters um, with individual handle letter tools. Um, these are some handle letters that we have in the shop that are a 17th century style. They're not 17th century. Uh, tools, uh, but they're they're essentially the same um, same things that they would have been would have been using. Um, these are heated, stamped into that leather individually. Like I say, um, here's uh, my lettering in process. Um, egg glare was applied to the leather, gold leaf, a, a little grease, and then gold leaf laid on top of that. Uh, holds the gold in place um, during the tooling. Um, the heated handle letters were impressed individually, just the same as uh, as uh, Dr. Bray's uh, binder did in the 17th century, uh, but following some slightly less aggressive layout marks. Um, I didn't I didn't go quite that far, um, but at the same time did try to follow the. Uh, Try to follow the, 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 the overall style, which is kind of a hurried looking um, 
uh, hurried looking uh, um, bit of lettering with a couple with a little ruled box around it um, laid in with a with a double line fillet tool which is kind of looks a little like a pizza cutter um, and it uh, you can see that the the ends kind of overlap a little bit they just laid it in by eye um, so that rushed kind of uh, that rushed kind of lettering very hurried looking very kind of crude uh, to our eye um, that is very typical of the 17th through the mid 18th century it's really not until uh, well into the 18th century that we start seeing much more careful layout um, of, of any lettering like that and on the spine. And so I kind of want to address that. Th this is a price list, uh, 1669, I think. Uh, this is uh, uh, a price list shown in uh, Stuart Bennett's book. Um, and th I think this is the start of the answer to the question about the why the lettering looks like that, as well as many other features on these trade style bindings. Um, this is uh, another, uh, this is a broadside illustrated in Stuart Bennett's book. Um, 66 operations uh, described for the binding of a, of a 12 mo. Um, duty of man. So this is describing the binding of a specific book um, and uh, the price according to that agreed price list uh, for that. Um, when we're making historic models, um, uh, we face many choices about the level of fidelity to historical techniques and aesthetics. Uh, we also make models of modern binding types and uh, and real modern books as well. And we certainly strive for the quality of work and level of finish expected by 21st century clientele when, when making those books and boxes. But when we're considering the trade style practices of our predecessors, um, and we attempt to emulate the hurried style of the lettering, for example, uh, we're having a discussion constantly with ourselves and with our colleagues in the classroom um, about what kind of corner cutting, uh, what kind of efficiencies um, can we, that we can, can we accept in our work today as opposed to the past? Um, but one thing we often note is that the reality of our work is uh, not very different from what it's always been. Um, we're working on a really tight margin uh, and we're further burdened by the expectations and aesthetic of uh, people living in the machine age. Thank you.